You're listening to Too Much Information. My name's Benjamin Walker. On this episode of the program, we're spending a whole hour with Gary Panter. This October, WFMU is doing a month of special programming. It's the 31 Days of October campaign. Check out the whole calendar at WFMU.org and look for the WFMU donation widget. Every show has one on their playlist page. Gary Panter is a painter, a cartoonist, a designer, a teacher, a musician, punk rocker, and I'm here in his studio, and I've already seen uh, like a billion things we could talk uh, hours, we could spend hours talking about. But what's brought me here today is the release of one of Gary Panter's comic strips, uh, comic strip opus, Dal Tokyo. Thanks for having me over, Gary. Yeah, thanks for coming. Now, you've spoken many times about what kinds of sensibilities you bring to various media, like painting and cartooning. You say that, uh, and you've also talked about how the cons- as a consumer, one should approach these media, like paintings should be viewed on the walls. And comic books, you say, should be read in bed. Now, in bed, yeah. There's, uh, I tried reading yeah, I, haven't, I haven't tried to read that in bed. It's, yeah. It so, doesn't really it's work like, very well. Like four feet wide or yeah, something. Yeah, I ended up poking my eye out. I, I poked uh, the eye of the, the girl <laughs> laying next to me in bed. Um, can you describe... Uh, got her the, attention, at least. The... the <laughs> The physical physicality of this of this book. Well, it started out as a wide strip that ran in free newspapers originally, and so it's that kind of wide format. It's what about six and a half by eighteen? Yeah, <laughs> I think so sixteen. Then, then you open it up, and I can't do the math, but it opens up very wide. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and, a little difficult for the bed. And it's a strange book anyway, so yeah. I don't know where you're supposed to read this book. <laughs> you know, it's a project that spans decades. It officially starts in the mid-'80s and wraps up uh, 2007, 2008. But it's something that you've talked about that, that, that's been in your head for years, I mean, even before starting it. And I'm, I, I, I'm curious, you know, if you think back to the very, very beginning, how did you first remember talking about it? Um, I have a friend... Uh, from Sulphur Springs, Texas, where I grew up, and we were the weirdos in town. And uh, he he uh, wrote a poem in high school about all the about a time rupture happening in Sulphur Springs, Texas, on the square, and all cultures suddenly appearing on this square. And that was really the first idea I had. After I got out of art school, I got a job as a janitor, and to keep myself uh, uh, amused, I started imagining that. All the desks in the building were city blocks, and uh, so I started really building Del Tokyo out of my janitor job. Some places had, you know, a lot of paper clips on the floor, you know, by the trash can. That became, you know, a dump yard for scrap metal. And so it was a place first. It's a place, yeah. It's a the I, that was the idea was that um, that Texas and Japanese people had settled on Mars, and there was like a long-standing colony. And then after that, it becomes kind of invisible, because if you're in a long-standing colony and you can breathe air, then you could be anywhere, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the folks at Fanographics uh, give us a condensed, simpler uh, description. Um, Jimbo and my other characters live on Mars in a well-established planet-wide sprawl of a city that was founded by the Japanese and the Texans. Um, and in your book's Jimbo's Inferno, Jimbo in Purgatory, your characters also mix it up in this world of Dante. And I'm wondering what sort of separates those from the place of Dal Tokyo. Well, in my mind, they're all on Mars. 
<laughs> is it but, <laughs> is it fair to say that this is the capital city of of Gary Pantoland? Of my cartoons, all my characters live there, or they live in magazines that are there, and so on. Yeah, everything's in pretty much. I tried yeah. to do a strip that didn't take on Mar- take place on Mars, but then it Mars started creeping in. So I guess it's all on Mars. So basically, starting from you thinking about as a janitor building this world, it's, this has kind of been. The, 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 the site where it all takes place. Yeah, I bored my friends to death with it for years before I got the place to draw it. I started drawing it in 83 in the LA Reader, but I invented it in about 72 or 3 and blabbed about it to my teachers and friends. So yeah. I felt obliged to actually do it so I could prove to them I wasn't just driving them crazy, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, people have been waiting for this book, this collection to come out for, for, for many years. But I think, again, those, the, the, as you just said, the, this place sort of is, we get to see this place in other, your books. But I still feel that, you know, you said, uh, you did a talk earlier this year with uh, Bill Cardalopoulos, our, our friend, comic scholar, when the MoCA folks gave you a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, congratulations on that, Thank by you. the way. But when he was asking you about, our, you know, the question of the different media you know, painting, comics, uh, you said, you know what, I think I'm more of an idea man. That was kind of the answer you gave. That, Like what unites it all together is you're very interested in the, bringing lots of ideas to your work. And that, in that sense, it seems like this really is the opus and that like, this book is so jam-packed of so many of your ideas. Yeah, and part of the idea is that it's a metaphor and that it's a phony place. And so, I mean, that makes it related to metafiction in a way. And that in some books, it's portrayed as a bunch of models on tables. And, you know, so it's it's everything I can put into it. And that probably comes from me being a fan of Frank Zappa and an idea of music and art, Eduardo Paolazzi and, you know, people that put a lot of reading lists in their art, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a whole hour to talk about these, and there are so many ideas in the book. I'm thinking I'd like to just kind of take that one by one and start slowly. And let's start with Texas, which is where you grew up. Yep. And it, you grew up, and you've talked about this you know, in other places, with a, a conservative Christian family in a small town. And for many artists, this is you know, sort of the, the site of resistance where they, they form their identities and they, they run away from. But you know, when, you, when I read some of the things you've written about your your uh, artist father, it seems like he still nurtured your artistic ambitions, and he was an artist himself. And, and, and I guess so before you started asking questions about religion, it seems that family, art, Texas, there was sort of a harmony. Yeah, I mean, my parents were very young, and in my first five years, we lived in a house trailer and moved around a lot, and my father was oil painting in the house trailer, and and my mother and him were fighting about the oil paint all over everything and him staying up all night because he was an obsessed artist, which he kind of had to give it up to raise three kids. And so over time, he did less and less art. But I knew that he, uh, that he was, that it was an obsessive thing with him because he would return to it sometimes. And, and so, yeah, I was encouraged to be an artist, but then my art turned strange, and you know, which bothered him, but he was still you know, supportive of being an artist. But... He had to suffer a bit. Yeah, in in your monograph monograph that Picture Box put out a few years ago, there's a few images of your father's paintings. You you, you describe them as cowboy paintings, and it seemed like he had his own mythology going on in, in in a world that he was working on. Yeah, he's been painting my whole life. He's been painting two kinds of paintings. 
one kind of painting is like the cowboy paintings that have like a dimensional space and like the view through the window. And then the Native American paintings that are flat and outlined very much like, you know, uh, Woody Crumbo or, or artists like that from the 40s or 50s, which I'm not sure how aware of that he is. But he would always jump back and forth and not really uh, uh, maybe think about it too much. Just this was the other, the next idea he got. And he's a devoted painter. He always has a little studio in his backyard, and and he sits out there breathing the oil paint fumes, and he seems to be doing okay. He's just turned 85. He's painting away. When you were a kid, when you thought about, you know, you, you, you always say that you identified as an artist early on. Was it this idea of an artist coming from your father or an idea of an artist in opposition to that? No, it was absolutely coming from my father. I mean, just watching this guy make stuff. There were books lying around that he had. There were his textbooks from college. Uh, he minored in art, and uh, like um, you know, kind of horrifying anatomy books and things. You know, Vesalius engravings and things. Those were laying around my whole life, and and so in some ways, like what I got from him as an artist did kind of influence you know even the grotesqueries in my work. And, uh, but, you know, I think he didn't realize that that would be the thing I would emphasize would be the, <laughs> the weirdness. You know, when I think about Texas Christian fundamentalism, I, I think of, you know, hardcore Christianity, the evangelicals, or maybe something more scary like David Koresh. But your father, you know, so he's into art. He has these men's magazines around. He got to have comic books around. He would dress up as a clown and <laughs> climb on the, on the roof of his store. He does, I mean, what kind of fundamentalism is this? Well, he was serious. I mean, I guess that was separate. I guess in a lot of fundamentalism, however serious it is, people still watch television, still go to football games, still like look like normal Americans, even though they're probably supposed to be wearing sackcloth and ashes. And but you know, it was a serious. Well, there's, there's definitely some uh, divorce themselves from American culture fundamentalists too, though. Right, but now they wear T-shirts. You know, like kids will like look like every other T-shirt except they've got a. a t-shirt with a big cross on the back, you know, like teens for Jesus and stuff, you uh -huh. know, or my friends on, on Facebook are talking about the controversy of cheerleaders wanting to put scriptures on, on the banners that football players jump through, you know, and stuff like that. So these are still big, important issues in Texas and, uh, you know, and elsewhere. I mean, my mom became a born-again Christian when I was young, and, you know, it was definitely no television, a real, a real sense of trying to divorce wow. ourselves from Satan, <laughs> the big yeah. popular <laughs> culture. <laughs> but it doesn't... Can you talk a little bit more about, like, so when you think back to this, you know, hardcore Christian upbringing, what, what sort of defined it as, as Christian for you? Well, I think the thing is it's part of the Protestant Reformation as opposed to Catholicism and... Uh, it's basically that view of taking a literal view that the Bible is completely inspired, every word is inspired by God, and that you can live your life by every single word in the Bible and nothing else. And it makes other books kind of scary, you know, because the Bible's the only thing and everything else is the world, and you're trying to get away from worldly things, yet we still had television and, you know, my, my you know mother dressed nice and people dress up to go to church, you know, to show off their the church suits. Was a big part of your life? In yeah, we went to church like, you know, twice on Sunday, Wednesday nights, all the revivals, and I had like Bible study on Wednesday, on Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, and 
And I was a missionary in 1969 to Belfast, and because I was maybe not, the, I was one of the better Bible students probably, or I was a problem for them actually because I kept asking questions, and so these preachers would give me books on predestination and stuff, you know, and try to like confound my questioning perhaps. Uh, I guess those kind of churches, you get scared when you're about 10 or 11, you know, because of all the talk of hell. Mm-hmm. Hell, you're going to die. You're going to burn in hell. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever in darkness and stuff. And so kids, as soon as they start getting that idea, like I did, it's like you go down to the front. There's a total ritual, you know. The preacher ends the sermon. The song sings, you know. The people start singing just as I am or whatever the song is. And you kind of run down front, you know, like get me under the water, you know, and yeah. take all my sins away. But you're 11, you know, like what what were the major sins you're getting rid of? You'd probably be better off waiting till 40 when you really have some sins to get rid of, you know, if you're smart. And but, uh, and when do you know do you remember at what age when you started to think like, okay, maybe this isn't for me? Well, I think it was strange even very young. I don't know why, but I I think we just went to a church a lot and it was a lot every everything in our home was kind of moderated through mm-hmm. the church if my if my relatives in Oklahoma were arguing, arguing about politics there was a scripture behind it and uh, no it's all about like this life is a phony life it's just a test you better have the right password to the next life or you're in trouble you know so people are desperately trying to figure out how to get in good with God and stay in good with God so he'll not kill us off yeah. with our short little pathetic animal lives, you know. But you were a star Bible student, so you you had you had sort of worked, you know, you had a close relationship with the with the book. Yeah, I mean, I know the Bible fairly yeah. well. I can't tell you the verses. I mean, really good Bible students with better memories could tell you the chapter and verse and stuff like that, which I couldn't, but it also made me the obnoxious kid on the playground, you know, yelling at other kids for cursing and, you know, telling them they were going to hell because they were Baptists instead of in the Church of Christ, you know, or they were in those party churches like Methodists and, you know, that God wouldn't take seriously because they weren't suffering enough or whatever it was. They didn't have the magic word. Hmm. So when did it, when, what age were you when you were like, okay, dad, mom, we have to have a talk. I never had that, well, I never really had that talk. I just went to college and stopped going to church. By junior high school, I got ulcers probably related to church and just not being a good student probably also. I couldn't memorize things. And uh, so no, I went to to college. I went to church a couple of times and realized I don't really, you know, I don't really want to be here. I did like going to Ireland as a missionary. There was a lot of art activity in Belfast, aside from bus burnings and stuff like that. There was a lot of art. There's a billboard campaign with artists all over Belfast, and and we went to uh, Glasgow, and I got to see Eduardo Paolazzi sculptures, and you know it was. So I've always been after art. I mean that. Do you think it would have been harder to break away if you had, had sort of been stuck living with your parents? I mean, it's, in other words, it seemed like it made it easier going away to art school. Yeah, I mean, I only went 12 miles, but yeah, it it <laughs> it made it a lot easier because, yeah, I mean, there's not It was really... only 12 miles away? Yeah, well, then they moved 100 miles away. I, uh, I went, you know, we lived 12 miles away. 12 miles away? They should You should be expected to show up in church on Sunday. No, they didn't know what I was doing over there. They, were, they actually, they were busy moving to another town, okay. so they moved to Longview farther <laughs> away. 
I would go there on weekends. You know, I still went to church with them for years, uh, but I would get angry. You know, I would get angrier and angrier. And really, the last straw for me really was, uh, I mean, way beyond uh, what it should have been, was probably 9-11 when uh, all the churches got together and prayed, and these churches don't because they're the only true church and they will not hold hands with the Baptist and the Methodist and Catholics because they don't count. Uh. And I just thought, this is wrong and stupid, and I'm not going to grace them anymore with my, you know, questions and stuff, you know. So it's sad. It's sad because my parents would like me to go to church and just say hi to their friends. Yeah. But as soon as the preacher starts talking, I want to kill everybody, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. so that's not very healthy. So you talk about yourself on the playground, you know, sort of, you know, being the obnoxious uh Church of Christ kid. But it was, you know, and you talked about your household was sort of everything being filtered through the church. But did you feel like your childhood, your upbringing, was that sort of the dominant force? Yeah, I think so. But I saw, you know, I mean, my parents were young when I was born. We lived in Brownsville, Texas. And so Mexico had a big influence on me. And just seeing the colors of Mexico and the folk art and the print jobs for Mexican wrestlers. And also, we went to the. We lived across the street from a drive-in movie, so we could see a giant picture across the field all the time, not necessarily hear it. And we often went to the drive-in movies, which was a giant, you know, source of information. And uh, in 1958, I guess it was, we went to a movie called The Animal World, which featured a giant dinosaur fighting sequence uh, that was, I think, probably made by Willis O'Brien or early Ray Harryhausen, and. I had already kind of gotten the dinosaur bug from a visit to a geologist trailer when I was about, you know, four or five years old with my father when he was in seismography. So dinosaurs stuck. And so in church, in these kind of churches, the explanation is, because the world is only 6,000 years old, uh, is that Satan has put these bones in the ground to fool smart people. Oh. That's the explanation. You know, it's, <laughs> They're put there to bring high people low. And that just, you know, it didn't make much sense to me. And I was fascinated by these monsters and, and that they were a real thing. I mean, for a child, it's like, yeah. oh, it could eat me. It's giant. It could come and eat me. But thank God it's not around, you know. Yeah. And uh, but it still becomes a, and it's a great thing to draw. Yeah. No. And and Dal Tokyo, the the dinosaurs seem almost more, you know, with the Godzilla monsters with Japan. But it's it seems that no, the dinosaurs really come from Texas. Yeah. In you. this case, they're uh, you know they're like farm animals. They're protoceratops, yeah. which really and most of them are protoceratops, was cows, which are mainly from the Gobi Desert. But Texas was underwater, and there's a lot of fossils in Texas. I always had a fantasy of digging in my backyard, and I probably could have found fossils if I dug in my backyard because I've discovered since I left that there's all kinds of mosasaur bones and all kinds of fossils yeah. uh, just, you know, almost in my backyard. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, Japan and Tokyo, um, uh, the other half of Dal Tokyo, uh, or the other main component. Um in the monograph of your paintings, there's some earlier ones from like 1979, I think, that you know where you, the Godzilla paintings, where you're already thinking about Japan, and uh, you talked about Mexico being sort of this place with this whole other world. And I know that you, the print uh, registration, the bad print jobs, was something that really uh, impressed, had, had made a big impression on you. But what about Japan? Like, what did that, you know, why why not Dal Mexico? 
Yeah. Well, cause where, where I guess it's because it's from? part of Texas in a way, you know, there's just that, that's contested <laughs> land and the culture is mixed in, co-mingled with Texas. I heard way too much Mexican music and way too much country and Western music growing up. Um, but the thing that was probably in common with like Mexico and Tokyo, right, bad print jobs, but Japan has great print jobs, but they make very artificial movies. So seeing monster movies like Godzilla, it's phony and theatrical and you have to deal with it. It's either like, oh, uh-huh. I'm laughing at this because it's so bad or there's something interesting about it. And since I got interested in Japan, I started reading about the history of Japan and trying to figure out where that stuff came from and reading about kabuki and bunraku puppetry and no theater and stuff. I mean, slowly I was kind of becoming more fascinated with Japan. And also, being that I got interested in modern art really young, and a lot of it's influenced by you know Japan from the 1800s the late 1800s, when we forced Japan open. I don't know the date when Perry went in. I don't remember. But uh, that kind of space really informed a lot of modern art and and graphic art. Yeah. You know, it seems that you you take on some of the the big themes of America's relationship. I mean, the end of Jimbo and Paradise is, I mean, that's that's pretty intense. Yeah, it's a pathetic apology for bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I guess we still haven't apologized for, you know. Need we do that? I don't know, but uh, it's definitely something to mourn for, and that's really what that comic strip was about. It's about Jimbo's in this place where there's a terrorist nuclear weapon, a small one, but still it destroys a section of the city, and he has to put a horse out of its misery. And uh, back to my father for a second, he paints horses and he loves horses and animals. He's very soft-hearted about that kind of thing. If he reads a, uh, a Western novel and a horse gets hurt, he stops reading the book. You know, he doesn't like books where the, the, hur- the horses get hurt. So that story is about a horse being, you know, mercifully put yeah, down. Yeah. And it's really a question about how merciful it is in a way. So, What, what year was that story done? When I drew it? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know, 84 Okay, five? so it was around the time of... Yeah, Tokyo, and so a lot sure. of the themes that are in that book... They're reflected in other things I'm doing, mm-hmm. like later in the book when I'm working on purgatory, that figures into the book as well. Absolutely. Um, but it also seems that another project you were working on at that time, Cola Madness, was something that you were going to do for a Japanese market. So it seems like the idea of Japan almost was like this mythical place where you could you know, be uh, successful as a working artist. It was. I mean, it was definitely a fantasy, and, and it was very intriguing to me, the idea of Japan. And so... I imitated Japanese art and letter forms and stuff in my illustration. And so when I went to L.A. in the late 70s, quickly Japanese magazines noticed and started sending people to interview me. I mean, just because I did illustrations that acknowledged Japan, I think. And uh, so then I got to go to Japan, and I was shocked at how westernized it was. It was kind of like, gee, where's Japan? <laughs> so but, it was not the Japan you had in your head? No, not really. But it was it was the real Japan, and the real Japan, the ancient Japan, is under the surface. Pretty, you know, not too deep. Yeah. And uh, so that's it is a dream come true. I mean, just having that connection to Japan at all. But one of the first people that came and interviewed me was Mr. Ishii, from Overheat Communications, and he became my agent, and uh-huh. he still is in Japan, and, and we're really good friends, and, you know, we've grown up together in some sense. And he brings reggae music to Japan, <laughs> so he's already interested in cultural confluence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let, let's let's talk about Mars now, because uh, 
you know, in the news so much. I don't know. if Were you obsessed with Mars the way you were with dinosaurs and science fiction as a kid? Yeah, I really like, I really like science fiction and I like science. And Mars is just one of those places, you, you know, in our solar system, there's not many places that there might be life. Maybe one of the moons of Saturn, maybe under the ocean, there might be some real frozen thing or something bobbing around. But Mars seemed like more, had more possibilities. And just as a fiction, I mean, yeah. figure after the moon is Mars. And probably when I started drawing this was probably when the first uh, satellites or whatever were sent to uh, mm. Mars have in you, the 70s, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you been looking at some of the images coming down from Curiosity? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the one yesterday, I guess, was this gravel bed they think reflects an ancient stream. You yeah, know? yeah. And there's some you know, a debate about that, of course. But the other one is when the cameras looked up and just looking at the Martian sky, which just, I mean, how that's yeah. just... As, I was obsessed with Mars as, as, as a, a kid as well, and it seems that the science fiction connection would be the world of Philip K. Dick. I mean, the story that you start yeah. to tell yeah. in Dal Tokyo definitely has a has a connection to the world of Philip K. Dick. It it absolutely does. I was introduced in college uh, by my friend Nathan Vinson to Philip K. Dick's work through another friend, Jay Cotton, who's one of my favorite friends, and uh, and so we started reading these things, and what got me was that it was a near future. Most of the science fiction I'd read was about people getting in spaceships and blasting off and landing on some planet. You're like Ray Bradbury, like, yeah. Jesus just left a minute ago. He was here. <laughs> I just missed him. And then the guy flies the next planet, that sort of thing. But Philip K. Dick, it was about people trying to pay their rent and arguing with things. And you knew this would come true, and it is coming true. I mean, if you write a letter, if you write an email, then it's trying to sell you things based on the things you sent to people, and it's eerie and weird. Yeah, and you're arguing with the, the appliances in your apartment that they want more, more, more money. One of my students did a comic strip about War of the Worlds. He just gave it to me recently. And he th- at some point, this radio falls on the ground, and the kid runs over in the story and, tr- and turns the radio on, but he doesn't turn the knobs. He pushes the button yeah. because that's forgotten knowledge that you would turn a knob instead of push a button. And so that's not ancient history. You know? yeah, yeah. But things are unnecessarily complicated now. I mean, it only takes two knobs to operate a radio, really, in oh, your car. Wow. But now if you're driving, you're totally having to figure this thing out. You know, like, well, there's 20 knobs on it. There's 20 buttons yeah. Too many options. Now, I, I, you've showed me pictures of yourself visiting Philip K. Dick, uh, and this yeah. would have been around the time you were working on Dal Tokyo. It was, which, yeah. Which, uh, but also, this was his crazy psychedelic project period. Yeah, when I went to, I went to interview him for Slash Magazine, because <clears throat> they knew I was a fan. I wrote him a fan letter, and he, he uh, one day a message showed up on my answering machine, just completely blew my mind. And it turned out that Phil's friend, K.W. Jeter, had encouraged him to do the interview because he was a fan of Slash and of punk rock and knew my comics and stuff. So, And Phil, I think, reading about Phil, you realize, oh, he's always allowed crazy kids to come over yeah. to his apartments his whole <laughs> life, you know. So we were just the new batch of punk rockers or whatever we were, you know, young artists that yeah. were allowed to come and waste some of his time. Yeah, but, you know, um, the beginning story that we start off with in Dal Tokyo, it seems to 
really resonate though with those science fiction setups. Uh, and I'm I'm curious, like, was <clears throat> he just sort of set up the story because it does start off with a story and how? I mean, did you plot it out in advance, or were you, you know, just, just just can you sort of set up the story? For us. Well, really, I just had the city in mind for years, and I had like all these parts of the city I'd thought about. So uh, when I started the comic, it was kind of like, where do I begin? How do I get all of this stuff in? Because I'd just been telling my friends about it. So my first notion was, is that cars are nearly obsolete, but there's collectors of cars. Rich guys could still have cars. So this rich guy, Mr. Gabble, he's like racing one of these last cars, a Mustang on this highway. And someone blows him, blows his car up. And so you don't really know, like, why it's being blown up. But the pictures turn up in a magazine, and it's very much like the magazine, like, past Kindle is going to be a flimsier version. Yeah. So you see this in this strip uh, back in the 80s. I thought, there'll be flimsies that broadcast, there'll be clothes that broadcast, there'll be tattoos that broadcast. And these are my little ideas about it. But there was, like, a psychic thing about that that opening scene of him on the overpass, like driving his car, when I, mean, I drew it in like 83, but when I moved to Brooklyn, that was the view out my window, was the elevated BQE with Staten Island in the background and all those cranes and stuff. It's almost the same scene. So you'd be standing where the photographers were, were standing? Yeah. Wow. That's, and that kind of thing happens in my work, which I don't like to think about, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't want to be, I don't want to be another superstitious person that has to run back to the Church of Christ to get the magic <laughs> word to get to the next Bardot. <laughs> but things happen like that. I, maybe when you've invested so much psychic energy in something that it really, I mean, things are connected in yes. some sense. Well, there's a, there's a strip about maybe third of the way in where you detail all the characters and all the connections and it's 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 quite dense <laughs> it gets complicated very quickly but can sort of take us from gavel's accident to to why where it gets complicated can i even keep it straight <laughs> well it turns out that gavel has these three four near sons which basically they're clones they're clones of him that he's raising and people rich people raise clones of themselves for future body parts and they're hot they're not citizens and they can be harvested and so there may be a conspiracy by the near sons to have blown him up they may have hired this guy who hates cars but actually likes diesel engines uh so yeah. uh so it, it's goofy you know yeah but, no no and, and it gets kind of complicated very quickly and, and then it kind of eventually explodes now this is moving out of the strip for a second these are running in the la reader from 1983, 1984, a magical time and a magical place. I mean, it seems that this was a great place to have your work. Yeah, because I'd wait. I mean, everyone had waited for 1984 for decades yeah. already, you know, and then yeah. suddenly it was over. But it was a it was a hard strip to draw. Again, it was like a lot to manage. I was trying to have it make some kind of internal sense. There wasn't much money involved. The editor, a very nice person didn't like it and it freaked him out because it made no sense and it wouldn't help sell ads and occasionally it had a a boner yeah and uh dinosaur boners yeah <laughs> and uh yeah and uh so anyway he was threatening to fire me every week and i was just going like okay if you don't want it just like tell me to stop i'll stop but i did it for a year i did it for 63 weeks and at the end of the year i woke up and it wasn't only because of this but i woke up one day and half of my hair was on the pillow 
in one day. It just had fallen out. That nervous condition was it alopecia nervosa or whatever it's called. And uh, that was humiliating and weird. And I thought, my body's telling me something. <clears throat> like, stop drawing this comic strip. Get out of L.A. Take your life apart, you know. Yeah. Do something, something well, else. Interestingly enough, around this time, the strips in the story, there's everyone's kind of falling apart as well. A lot of the characters are coming to pieces, being put back together. There's a lot of explosions. Right. Another thing that, that follows that clone thing was that I had a, a science fiction idea, you know, one of those phony devices of uh, that this rich guy, Mr. Gabble, he could experience what his clones experienced because they had embedded, uh, whatever you want to call it, devices that would let him experience and one of them goes to bed with a nurse. When he, when he has this car accident, he has to be put back together, and some of his body parts are taken. And so one of his near sons has an affair with this nurse who's like a kind of a reconstituted alien dinosaur lady who ends up biting him and tearing him to bits. And so then Gabble is rendered again uh, in pieces because he's experiencing everything through his near son, and so then they have to be fused together and so then there's the three sons that are still clones, and then there's the fourth son who's now part of Gabble, and his personality's affected, and he's in love with this nurse, Barbie, or Barley, her name changes over yeah. and over. And so the rich guy, and so there's various people interested in her. She's put into this so-called hospital, which is really just a holding pen because she's a giant dinosaur kind of woman. And she splits into two. She ends up splitting in two over the course, which happens in my comics for some reason. Like Jimbo's girlfriend early in early days split into like 50 and disappeared. So I don't really know what that's about. Well, I mean, if I had to take the Del Tokyo pop quiz and and, and if there was an essay (laughs) question, sort of like what is the through line, I think that's what I would talk. That's what I would would go for. There's this this explosion. There's people coming apart. Or, you know, when you tell the hair story, maybe is it the body but or is it the mind it seems that there's the there's something going on with gabble's mind or 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 the individual the mind of the individual sort of fall, coming to pieces yeah things are leading up to this disaster of some sort yeah. and then in the middle of the strip the 9-11 happened the real disaster happened and the real psychic uh well that's much later event. i mean yeah, I, it I is. Think that's that's, that's just, 10 years later right? yeah right. i'm talking about this period in 1984 okay where we you know i think it was affected by 9-11 <laughs> retroactively you know. <laughs> that's my insanity <laughs> but how would i do on the essay question about this being the through line about the explosion? that's a very strong through line you know but for me i guess i live in the, the little details of it you know like uh the guy who blew up gabble's car he has this kind of dog spider that these kids kind of steal away from him so he's kind of thwarted and uh the kids Plus later again. Oh yeah, you're yeah. right. No, you know, no, to me, is... it's like one big thing. I forget yeah. that there's yeah, but there's this a decade before you pick it back up. But I never stopped thinking about it. You know, really? it just kept going on. And in fact, when I went back to it, I mean, part of the reason it diverges into metafiction is because of art supplies, in a way, because I was drawing it with a rapidograph. In the, for the first year, and I thought I could never go back to doing that. It takes so long. I'll switch to nibs. But if you switch to a dip nib, then your brain waves are different because a rapidograph will draw for miles like a ballpoint pen, but a dip nib will only draw for 8 inches or 10 inches, and so you have to refocus over and over. Yeah. So I think that even things like that affected like how the story came out or like how it became treated. Yeah, well, you pick it up in the mid-90s. 
right? I guess. I guess. And so. it, you know, yeah. and it's this is still pre-internet. At this moment, you know, there's so many alt weeklies that are doing really well financially. There's, you know, there's, there's this. <laughs> For a minute, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it seemed like there, there was a lot of energy, and especially on the comics page, you had so many good ones from Kaz's strip here, and you know, you had two papers. You had the. The weekly. Yeah, the Village Voice, and then the Alt Press. What was it called? Um, New York. Gee, I don't know what. Is it still around? The free, the free press. Yeah, New York Press. Oh, the New York Press in New York. Yeah, Yeah, and the East Village, other and no, but in the mid '90s, there was a. Did you, did you think like, wow, I could do a weekly strip again and get in on this, or were you, because it it ends up in Japan in a magazine called Rhythm. Right. No, it was really. I mean, that moment in the '80s, there were a lot of venues for comic strips, and it went through like the early '90s, probably. And there was also mini comics happened mm-hmm. and self-published comics happened, and so that was another phenomenon going on. But um, so you weren't motivated to get back on the comics page. It really was Rhythm Magazine. Mister Ishii asked me if I would start drawing Del Tokyo again because he was a fan, and they tried for one second to translate it, and it couldn't be translated, and so they just let me do whatever I want to yeah. for, for I don't know twelve years. Or so did something. you look at this magazine? Oh yeah, yeah. So this was. I mean, it's in Jap- Japanese. Yeah, no, but it's a it's a Japanese magazine about reggae music. Yeah, and there's yeah. a whole, you know, pantheon of Japanese reggae stars that are Japanese. Yeah, maybe more ska type bands than really reggae bands in Japan. But there's guys like Rankin Taxi and. Around 2002 to 2005, I was in Kingston, Jamaica, a lot working oh, there, wow. and uh, a lot of the guys I met. That, you know, and we're talking like really scary areas. And this is 2002, and they were talking about how in the early 80s there would be these Japanese girls who would just get off the plane with these little maps looking for these record stores to buy these 45s that they were looking for, and it just blew everyone's mind that Japanese people would come to Kingston, this very unsafe place, in search of this music that they were in love with. So it seems and like... You're right. And some other faction was going somewhere else because my view was that the Japanese are very outward looking. They were looking all over the world and they would have people come back and do articles, you know, with maps, details, yeah. products, everything you would want to know about LA, San Francisco, Russia, wherever. Yeah. And so reggae was one part of that. So it does seem that <clears throat> even though your strip is not about <laughs> reggae music, but the fact that there was this cultural mashup, yeah, it seems like this was the perfect home for that was something the, it like that. It was the down, perfect so, home. And yeah. finally, I put it a reggae mouse into the strip. I was just going ba- to ask you about <laughs> yeah. reggae mouse. Is that where reggae mouse comes from, Rhythm yeah. Magazine? Yeah, he's, he does. He's a character you're still working with. So, I mean, yeah, I still work with him. You gave me a mini-comic, or the no, the new story in Kramer's Ergot. Yep. He's in there. No, I just thought, I better put a reggae guy in here. I've been drawing this for a decade. Rasta Mouse. Yeah, Rasta Mouse. <laughs> he's got a name. I can't remember it. He changed it. A lot of... My characters have various names. So you know, I knew it. I knew Rhythm Magazine had 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 contributed to the characters. Now, Mystery She and Rhythm Magazine. This was a major thing to have a venue to do something insane in. And again, the first I drew it in L.A. and it was a suspect device. How can we get this out of the paper? You know, oh no, we've let it in. And whereas in Japan, you know, they just let me go crazy yeah. when they switched to uh, online. Finally, then the strip ended. But when you picked it up in the mid-90s, you didn't really return to the story, per se. I started, to... I started back with the story, and then I realized quickly that I was interested in metafiction and doing all the variations. Since I had this freedom yes. that I would just 
explore like what a four panel strip could be or a horizontal strip could be. And, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, it's a thing I do. A lot of cartoonists are not experimental, but I'm like one of the experimental guys. So I figured I better experiment, you know, I should get on with it. And did you, so how, so what sort of can starts connecting when you have this freedom to do, you know, anything and it really does vary i mean you introduce new characters some things disappear some come back the characters start splitting as we talked about um did you have a sense of where you, uh where you were going yeah i did have an idea of like where this i knew that it, that this through story probably had to do with barbie and her twin and all of these guys who thought they had a vested interest in her supporting her in this hospital and that she would reject them and that it would be about the guys uh competition for her in a way i mean that's one of the sub that's one of huh. the stories that's being told in this book it's kind of like guys that think they own girls you know it seems that the the psychedelic issues come up here and i'm wondering were they there all along like the kids that are following the spider dog i mean are they tripping at one point it's hard to tell from the way i portrayed it but the kids discover a pile of psychedelic magazines buried in the desert and they're from a time when magazines can move. So these are like the mm. psychedelic magazines from your dreams. Do you ever have a dreams where you go to a newsstand? It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe these pictures are moving and they're colors I've never seen before. And I wish I could take them home. Then you wake up. And so they're it's not about tripping. that. They're not It's just the magazines. They start tripping because there's psychedelic material on the magazines. And so, yeah, they trip for a couple of weeks out in the desert. Okay. And so that's that whole section where everything turns psychedelic for a while. You know, you know, when I got to that part, I was wondering if I had just missed was the psychedelics there all along. Because it seems that, you know, going back to your own story and when you were young, thinking about imagining the the rooms that you're, you're in as a janitor sort of becoming a city, it, it seems that must connect to some of the early adventures with LSD. No. Yeah, I'm afraid it does. I mean, I really wanted to be a hippie, and I really, you know, desired to know what was out there. And in 73, I took some acid someone gave me, a friend gave me. It was like a clay cylinder, and I broke it in half, and I took half of it and had an extremely powerful trip. And I went to uh, Dallas with my friend and my electronic music teacher, uh, Shabdener, And we went to see uh, Bill Evans play at a jazz club in Dallas, and everyone turned into birds and lizards. And it wasn't altogether pleasant because it was so powerful. And then months later, I took the other half when I was depressed in the winter and just blew the top of my brains out with it, really. I was, like, terrified for years, and I really had consequences from this trip. And... uh, and what consequences sort of made it into the world of, of Dal? Um, that thing I said about 9-11 influencing yeah. everything retroactively, you know, which I shouldn't think about or go there. But when, you know, when you go into psychedelic realms and the filters are lifted, you know, anything can happen. And everything that happens isn't always good, especially if you're an ex-Christian with a lot of mental knots. And, uh, once, and also, this was acid. I mean, on Wikipedia... On Wikipedia, it seems that this acid was purposely manufactured by the CIA with, uh, to undo what they'd started with a strychnine and speed in this orange sunshine. And oh, it wow. was very painful and horrible, and, but very graphic. You know, Would I undo it? I'm not sure. Uh, but I did suffer from it. 
Um, huh. You know, so let's let's talk about the 9-11 strip. It seemed, for me, when I came across it, it seemed that for you uh, as an international voice in this cross-cultural mashup magazine, Japanese magazine about reggae culture, it seemed that it was more of a platform, almost like how could you not be talking about 9-11? It seemed right. like more like 9-11 had interrupted the story. Yeah, it did. It felt like that, that to me, but it... The way you're talking about it, it's very central and connected as part of the story. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? That's insane. But say a few months before, there were all kinds of things. Again, I can't believe I'm talking about this again. But there were all kinds of symbols I saw in this acid trip that would crop up. And why, it was why like, don't you like to talk about this? Because it's madness. It's insane. You know, I don't want to <laughs> well, admit do I'm it. insane. Let's, come on, let's, let's do it. But uh, there were all kinds of things that I became afraid of after this acid trip. Fire helmets, false teeth, ashes on floors... Uh, picket fences, uh, a whole list of things that I would avoid, and a lot of images I saw. And if you, and in Williamsburg and where my studio was, the year before it was like the hate Ashbury, but with no content. There wasn't a war. There was all these kids flocking there. They were mm. on the streets. They were partying. They were doing things, but it seemed totally empty in some sense. You know, there wasn't a the hordes had totally hadn't showed up yet. Yeah, no. The, the content, the war hadn't showed up. And uh, so about a month before 9-11, this poster went up on the wall. I don't know who did it. And it was called Iburn. And it was this Cubist Mule poster, pretty big, on a wall near my studio. And I went, oh, my God, that's another one of those things I saw on LSD back in 73. Oh, no. And on my trip, I remembered seeing it weather and come off the wall in, like, time lapse which I did see it over the next year, weather and come off the wall in time-lapse. And uh, so, again, this is madness. I can't ah. pretend it's not, but there you are, uh, or there I am. And um, But, but and, this does, there's no madness in this strip. The one that you did, uh, uh, it seems really very much like, a, like I'm at my studio. I'm, oh, that's I'm just, the straight. I mean, the thing was, it's, I started drawing it from right to left in Asian fashion, at that moment, because it's also a way for the towers to go back up in the strip. But if you look at the strip before, there's all these ants carrying eggs through the desert. There's geological strata. There's a big smoking pit. There's pterodactyls flying. There's all these things that you could say were prescient, if that's the right word. And yeah, that's kind of, again, taking powerful LSD can mark you for life, you know? I have a, most of my friends, you know, took LSD and danced around. Yeah. And had fun, you know. But not you. I took the wrong LSD, I guess. You know, it's interesting that the the one of the weekly strip motifs that you use is the next always, you know, and which is kind of funny. Once you know, it, it's it works the beginning when you actually have a story that we're connecting <laughs> the, yeah. the strips together. But once you return to it, you know, in the mid '90s, and especially by the 9/11 strip, they're really. I'm rolling dice in a way. I'm yeah, writing something and I'm seeing if it like has an effect on the next trip. Again, yeah. it became this superstitious thing. There's a point where you remember there was this thing where a submarine came up under a Japanese trawler and killed all the people on board. Well, I had done a strip again like a month before that was about a monster coming up under a ship and all the people dying, you know, that's that's in quoted in, into that thing. So yeah. Again, there's a level of insanity there I don't really like to dr to dwell on much. I try to avoid. Yeah, but you have uh, the next for the 9-11 panel is fantasy. Yeah, that would be preferable. Yeah. No, it was ugly. I was in Williamsburg. I was on the rooftop, 
and I was on the rooftop and we could see the World Trade Center burning very clearly and I lost my mind and I was screaming, but I was next to people and I was drawing and screaming, but I was next surrounded by beautiful fashion model type artists, you know, who were looking at it. They're 20 years old and I could tell they weren't processing it the way I was processing it. They weren't screaming, where's the Air Force? You know, where's the Air Force? Uh, they, it was just, a, oh, wow. Oh, wow, man, look. And you could see fire trucks coming from every part of Brooklyn. They were on their way from all far, far away, all heading for the World Trade Center. Someone was ringing a bell in a church. You could hear someone madly ringing a bell, you know. So it's like a big, big psychic mark. But uh, no, well, it was in a way I was really frightened. I mean, 9-11 was really, as everyone remembers, it was frightening because then you thought, if you had an imagination, you could imagine, oh, if I was a devious person, here's how I could screw up everything and kill people and stuff, you know. Ask a cartoonist, you know, how to <laughs> screw up the world. It's not hard to imagine. And then, you know, it didn't. I mean, things ha- bad things happen to people all over the world. And that was the thing, like seeing the World Trade Center fall down. This is, sounds like a poetic thing, but you could see it falling on people all over the world for decades, yeah. you know, which is what it's doing. It's still falling on people. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that I, even though I've been thinking about the explosion uh, through line, it seems, of course, obviously, that uh, I, don't even, I don't even know if I would have put that in my essay question if I had done the quiz earlier. But, if, you know, again, it felt like it was such a more of an observational outside of the strip. But I'm realizing now that even with the explosion and the falling apart, that, of course, it, it connects to everything in the story. It connects to my insanity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I'm not totally insane, you know, all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, at... As we, you know, the, so the strip goes on for about another six years here, six to seven years. At one point, Rasta Mouse shows up <laughs> asking, uh, "Is this Dal Tokyo still?" He's not sure if he's there. And I, as a reader, I kind of at, at this point, this maybe after some the heavy tripping part, I think, he, or maybe uh, connections more to the purgatory. They're all still there. They're all still in Dal yeah, Tokyo, yeah. but now they're in fiction. They're in metafiction. So they could have some self-awareness maybe if, if they were to look around and see like, oh, like a Phil Dick book. Oh, it looks phony here. Yeah. Oh, the chair turned into a, a word on a piece of paper, you know. Was that just a reminder to us, the readers, or yourself that, you know, we're still here? For those yeah, who might I guess be thinking so. and maybe we're lost? Yeah, I've used those kind of in lyrics in a song, so maybe so. You know. So, all right, Gary, let's, let's talk. How does this thing end then? Yeah, oh. there's this like crazy race of all these guys across the desert. They plow through this giant uh, nest of termites with a termite queen, and they end up out on this plane. There's another thing that happens where there's kind of a tsunami predicted. There's like a, um, there's also a through line in all of my comics of a growing faith movement among robots. And they're waiting, they're talking about this l- robot leader that's going to be their messiah called the New Dixon. That's a little, that's not, that's not as obvious. In, in no, here. it's not obvious. They're always just mumbling about it. If you okay. look at my comics, there's always robots talking about the New Dixon all the time. And who is the New Dixon? He's this robot that shows up with his daughter at some point in this story, but there's a flood that you don't see that he's washed away in. So then they have to look for a New Dixon. A newer Dixon. <laughs> and is this something that you're going to return to maybe in, a, in another book? Another uh, I more no, sustained I have no idea. I mean, my, com- my characters are still living in, on Mars in Del Tokyo, 
but I've done so many strange books. I mean, Inferno, Jimbo's Inferno, it's just kind of like climbing on the bulwarks of Inferno and replacing it with my characters. Purgatory was this insane procedural game that made it not very friendly. It was like a reading list that's kind of impenetrable otherwise. It's a difficult book. Yeah, and then Dal Tokyo is worse. <laughs> it's more impenetrable. But it's more fun. I, okay, I have good. to say, I, yeah. I, I, I think this one's a little, little more easier to... Maybe just because of the four-panel setup where there's always a new... You know, you always have uh, another fresh start. You don't have Dante there. I had to slavishly, you know, interpret by my methods this Dante thing. And, um, and you're not done with it, are you? Well, now I'm researching purgatory. Yeah. I was lucky enough to uh, be awarded a Coleman Fellowship, and I'm working every day at the New York Public Library. I have an office, and I have incredible, incredible resources to study. So I'm studying. I, I never kind of wanted to do approach purgatory, and I definitely don't want to go back to Dante in a way, though it'll be underlying. But I don't want it to be that hard, cold kind of purgatorial thing. If it's paradise, it shouldn't be that hard and cold. I mean... For Dante, it's an adjustment of the eyes to the brightness. Yeah. And for um, Milton, it's kind of a soap opera in a way based on, uh, you know, Jesus being tempted by Satan, you know, which I don't really believe in Satan, you know. And Jesus was this guy long ago who was, seemed like maybe kind of okay, you know. So when you are working with these heavy themes, are you, have you left Dal Tokyo behind? or I mean, No. Yeah. Can you, no. can you explain that? Well, so the new book I'm trying to do would be an 80-page Jimbo book. <clears throat> and Paradise might be part of it, if it can be. But I'm trying to make stories that, like in the mini-comic I gave you, they're stories that make sense, have punchlines, things stay on the ground, they're not predicting the future. They're just, you know, digestible stories in eight-page chapters. That's a convenient mm -hmm. length to try to tell a, a story. And uh, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make a friendlier book the next time out because I've made very unfriendly books. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious about the con if you could just explain the connection, how you're not leaving Dal Tokyo behind, because I think that perhaps sometimes it may seem that there are different realms. Maybe it's just that the way they're sliced up into different books, but you're not leaving Dal Tokyo. No, I mean, I've been putting characters for years. And also it's a science fiction premise. I like science fiction, and I have little silly ideas, you know, about science fiction, mm -hmm. and it's a place for me to take them. Like in the, like these guys in one of my recent stories, they go out to get to Seven Eleven oh, to get some food, one. and they end up at this weird kind of processing center that issues them these like robot servants that can give them anything, instantly making them addicts to the uh, robot servants. This story is in the latest Kramer's or got. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's comprehensible. You yeah. know what's happening, and so that's what I want to do. But it's still down Tokyo, but it's, the focus on each of these little stories has been a different place. It's either Jimbo's living in a billboard, or the reggae mouse lives in a little shack by the sea, or Zipper, the aging punk rocker, has a so-called punk uh, compound out in this place inhabited by early, early proto-dinosaurs and... It's still Dal Tokyo. Well, Gal, Dal Tokyo has just been published by Fanographics. They did a great job. We should talk about the maps, one of the most amazing things in the book. Yeah, and this book never would have happened, but one of my former stu students, Raymond Son, and his, his wife, uh, uh, Tomomi, uh, organized the whole thing because I couldn't 
put it back together again. I'd made contradictory numbering systems and it yes. all gotten out of order and stuff. But with his help, with their help, they wanted to take it on and Fantagraphics wanted it. So it, it came together. But I wanted a map of Dal Tokyo to kind of show there's these vellum pages at the beginning of the book that show a map of Mars, but with real contradictory information. And the contradictory information comes from my premise that people moving to another planet would want to bring memories with them. And so in this scheme, <clears throat> the uh, Tokyo rail system from the 20s is imposed on the planet, the Texas highways up into Colorado and over to New Mexico are superimposed. The uh, seas before, you know, the continents drifted to where they are now <clears throat> are artificially built on Mars. Of course, this wouldn't work because of the terrain of Mars. It really wouldn't work. So it's totally a fictional thing. Well, um, I hear the siren in the background. And, and you know, you took some time away from your uh, library uh, work to, to hang out with us here at the, the studio today. So thank you for that. It's always fun. Gary Panter's Dal Tokyo is out now from Fanographics Books. This episode of Too Much Information was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with help from Bill Bowen, and it was recorded live in Gary Panter's Brooklyn studio. Visit WFMU.org for a calendar detailing all the special events and programming that make up this 31 Days of October special campaign. And there's a fundraising widget on all of the playlist pages.